This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book. I watched a movie. This week we're doing Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft, a new film by SpectreVision featuring the return of Richard Stanley. <laughs> we don't know who this director is, so we got into him this week. Richard Stanley. It turns out he directed the uh, cult classic film Hardware from 1990. I've heard about this film, but I've never seen it. So I go, oh, he's the director for Hardware. Interesting. Where has he been? Gone. But now he's back <laughs> and doing this. So, And he's doing it with SpectreVision. If you don't know, SpectreVision is a production company uh, headed in part by Elijah Woods and some others. It's a big genre company. They're Horror supernatural Definitely. Uh, you might recognize the title Mandy with Nicolas Cage. It was out last year. Or A Girl uh, Walks Home Alone at Night a few years ago. I think that was 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the same company putting out Color Out of Space starring Nicolas Cage based on HP Lovecraft. I just saw it. It's crazy. Uh, And I'm excited because I've never really gotten into Lovecraft. It's one of those terms that's kind of thrown out there a little bit like Orwellian or those types of things. Um, But I don't really know. So this is a perfect episode because I know Taylor's done all the digging on that. I have a lot of feelings about the film, and I'm super interested in about Richard Stanley. Um, Because I saw the trailer and it said the return of Richard Stanley. And I said, well, where, who was he and where'd he go? <laughs> and like Evan said, he made this movie in 1990 and then he just disappeared off the face of the earth, emerges 20 years later, which is a lot bigger budget than the stuff he had been doing. Right. Um, and it looks to me, I looked briefly over his IMDb, and he's, it seems to that he's done a lot of shorts in the meantime. Mm-hmm. He's done a documentary in that time, but nothing of mainstream scale. But at, conversely, you don't know what somebody's doing in the background and what they're working on. I learned that he actually wrote this script for Color Out of Space back in the Mm -hmm. mid-2000s, that he was actually hired to come on to write it then. And since then, it's just been floating around Hollywood. SpectreVision Uh, found him. I'll give you a brief overview, and then we'll go into the mystery that is Richard Stanley, and then why he was the guy to make H.P. Lovecraft and what he's all about. The Color Out of Space is a classic H.P. Lovecraft story ends with everybody getting destroyed and the unimportance of humans and humanity in the grand scheme of things. And it's, as a short story, which I read, does a good job of, and this is why H.P. Lovecraft is a little bit hard to adapt, is because you get a lot from the literary side of things, and he explains things very ambiguously, Mm -hmm. and the verbiage is esoteric, so it's a hard thing. It makes you feel, but it doesn't necessarily paint a specific picture, which is is really hard. And very poetic. I, I just, there was one passage that I said, good Lord, after I read this. <laughs> this is the climax of the book when this entity that has crash-landed on Earth and is making people go insane and turning the crops crazy and consuming the this farmer's mind is at its apex and is finally unleashing whatever it is to everyone, which we don't even understand. Yeah, what, what was the, and so uh, the text? That's, it says, quote, Over all the rest reigned that riot of luminous amorphousness, that alien and undimensioned rainbow of cryptic poison from the well, seething, feeling, lapping, reaching, scintillating, stringing, and malignly bubbling in its cosmic and unrecognizable chromaticism. See? I get it. I don't. I don't get it, but I totally get it. Yeah. We're all on the same level without having any idea of what we just saw. I was just like, well, something crazy. (laughs) came out of the well and nobody understood what it was and I don't understand but it's about it's got color or something 
when I was watching it, the closest thing I had to relate it to that was most prevalent in my mind was a film that was also based on a book of the same name, Annihilation, Mm -hmm. uh, came out recently with Natalie Portman. Yeah. Very much, I think, of the same tone and and concept, to be quite honest. It's about this this very... Uh, in color out of space, they use the the alien as a device to see how far these people really are from each other in a communication sense because it all affects them differently. But yeah, it's this mm-hmm. this it, this it, it, you don't really get too much of a good look of it, but it just manipulates and morphs stuff and it ma- makes something new. That was kind of it was I don't know they didn't say that quite exactly, but right. it definitely reminded me of annihilation. And annihilation way. certainly you're correct in that assumption was an inf- this was an influence on. Vandermeer, who is the writer who wrote the book that came out in 2016. I mean, I was betting. I mean, it, it's just so it's so dead on. I mean, and Annihilation is a beautiful movie. I yeah. highly recommend it for anybody who hasn't, hasn't seen it. The, uh, the original story, since H.P. Lovecraft was mostly writing in the late 20s, is set in the 20s. And so... Speaking to your yeah. understanding of they, I think they translated the communication well because they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have it was this farm in this town, and so the family was just getting more and more isolated because people were not going to see them. They knew weird stuff was oh, happening. They'd creepy. take different roads to go around them. Yeah, and it's the story of this one guy who is the narrator who goes to visit his friend who's the farmer, and he's the only person. And even he starts to drift away from him because he doesn't know what's going on there. Oh, wow. And then it becomes myth and legend after the disaster happens that wipes them all out. Really? So, yeah. So it's the same premise of how we're distancing ourselves from these problems, which they update for modern times. Fascinating. Yeah. The movie doesn't quite give me, evoke what I ju- what you were just telling me. It's mm-hmm. very interesting. But they implement new ideas about the entity and how it would affect modern communication, modern transportation, and things like that. It doesn't do as much about the separation between the family and society, even. Yeah. Um, but as we'll learn about H.P. Lovecraft, there's nothing good at the end of anything. It's always tragic and dismal. He uh, doesn't believe in anything, <laughs> apparently. Well, well, yeah, we'll figure out why that is. But first, we have to get into the life of our dear friend, the return of Richard Stanley. The return of Richard Stanley. I'll post, I, I love uh, it. Yeah, I'll post a link to the amazing long interview that I got all this information from, as Evan said, the people that found him in his absence who produced this film, Spectre Vision. They spoke with him at length on his whole journey, the crazy fable of Richard Stanley. (laughs) He's originally from South Africa, and I had to go through multiple sources to corroborate this, but it's true. He is the great-grandson of Henry Morton Stanley, who was the journalist who found Dr. Livingston. He's the guy that went into Africa and said, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Whoa. You know, Stanley and Livingston. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) No way. Yeah, yeah. He's the great-grandson. That's (laughs) That's wild. Of him. And that's why he's in South Africa. His mom loved H.P. Lovecraft and read it to him as a kid. Uh And we'll get to later in his life. His mom was dying of cancer, and this was like a 10-year process. And so he read H.P. Lovecraft to her in that time frame as well, Mm. which re-inspired his interest in it. And I thought that was interesting because I know in the movie, since he's the one that wrote the screenplay, this isn't in the book, the mom had cancer, has cancer. So obviously that's a big part of Richard Stanley's It's one of the first things you learn about any of the characters. Mm. Um, very, that, very, he, that mean, he incorporated that aspect of his that, life. Oh, you can see that uh, reverberate through. That's really, really Yeah. Important. So he went to school. He was interested in film. He was drafted, though, in the into the South African Army. 
So he fled to England in the early 1980s. And uh, this is when he worked on all his short films and music videos and was big into documentaries, just that artsy indie scene. He travels to Afghanistan for a documentary for the Soviet-Afghan war that's going on in the late 80s. There's this doc, which I'll post a link to on YouTube. It's called Voice of the Moon. He uh, had to flee the country. He escaped his... uh, cameraman got injured like they were embedded with the afghani oh wow fighters what? um and he got kind of the daily life of that person it reminds me a bit of denny villeneuve uh, mm-hmm. uh the the director of blade runner 2049 and prisoners he had a, kind of a similar starting at least in documentary i mean that's how he got going too and it's uh, and honestly documentary has gone through such a, a renaissance over the last right. decade uh, yeah. or maybe even more that i i it's constantly becoming something that I'm like, well, maybe I'd want to do that if I found the right story. It's, but You're anyway, embedding it's, yourself yeah. into the story. I mean, yeah, it's much yeah. more popular as well. And so, yeah. I mean, but really getting to know real human stories, mm-hmm. real empathy, and trying to convey and actually spread a story, a real story. Yeah. So he definitely got that. And like I said, we have tons of links in our show notes. Please go look at them. Please look at our links. They're so cool. <laughs> this 30 this minute documentary, Voice of the Moon, where he was embedded in Afghanistan. After this, in 1990, this is his first big feature film, which Evan mentioned, Hardware. It involves Iggy Pop and Lemmy from Motorhead, which he knew because of his music video work. And Dylan McDermott also is in the cast. Who is that? He's just a famous actor. He's oh, okay. still, still, still relevant right now. I'm illiterate. I don't know anything. <laughs> um, then in 1992, he has this film, Dust Devil, which is about this South African serial killer the production company that he used went bankrupt, so it was unfinished for a long time. But he got it out, though, through his own funding. Oh, really? And uh, Nicholas Cage. That's a lot of work, man. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Nicholas Cage was actually said he was going to work w- with him on this potentially. He had heard about it and was in talks for being the guy in it. And then obviously that didn't happen. But interesting now oh, interesting. that he is doing yeah. that. So these and that's two, a perfect yeah. fit. I mean, mm-hmm. coming around back to you know 2018, getting this stuff all going. Because with Mandy having just come out, Nicholas Cage has come into the circle at Spectre Vision. And so all the it seems like all the, <laughs> all the pins just kind of align. Nicholas Cage knows Richard Stanley and would therefore be obvious. You know, it, it, it all clicks. That's great. That's he great fits to know. The, he fits the vibe directly. Yeah. Then in 1996, so you can see he's on the come up. He's made these two indie sort of artsy projects, mm-hmm. feature films. Now he's on, for 1996, The Island of Dr. Moreau, which is this H.G. Wells novel adaptation about this weird scientist on an island who has these half-humanoid, half-monster creatures. See, I saw this on his IMDb, and I didn't look at it because I went, well, I didn't even hear about this because mm-hmm. it's mid-90s. I'm like, what is this? What, what? I just kind of skipped over it. So what's this? There- so this is an insane situation where... He was kicked off the production after three days, although it took, according to him, 41 days of them to even get a shot off. This involved Marlon Brando, who had already had his Apocalypse Now nonsense, where he's this prima donna diva who nobody can wrangle, and Val this Kilmer. Brando towards the end of his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to the, the, most dif- the most difficult, difficult yeah. person to work with. And Val Kilmer as well, who is extremely impossible to work with, yeah, according to this that, guy. He's, the, he's one of the biggest stars. He's Batman that same year. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it was just a total nightmare for him. 
there's actually a uh, documentary, which I'll post a link to the trailer for, called Lost Soul. The documentary came out in 2014, which is how these people at SpectreVision were then able to get back in touch with him. Oh, wow. And get it in, because this was one of his friends, where it explains... Look, look at documentary coming in to save the day. (laughs) Documentary comes in and reminds prevalent filmmakers of the time, hey, there's this guy out there, you don't know, look at this story, look what happened to him, and all the light bulbs start going. They've just worked with Nicolas Cage, and they're like, (laughs) they're off to the races. Look at yeah. Yeah. So that's exactly where it came from. Because the all the cast and the extras were in these weird masks and whatever, he hid on set as an extra, hiding behind a, a humanoid dog mask <laughs> to try and see the mess that was going on. I, just, I want photos of that. It was so I funny just want to see <laughs> in the trailer because the they're like uh, they're like Marlon Brando just wanted an ice bucket on his head, and then it immediately cuts to and he's just wearing an ice bucket <laughs> on his head, an absolute madman. But that's what basically everybody was like, "Oh, Richard Stanley, he's a weird director who can't handle a set. He's blacklisted uh, from all of filmmaking no. in Hollywood and elsewhere, so he goes off the grid." Oh, he took the scapegoat. Meanwhile, everybody else goes on loving Marlon Brando because they don't know what it's like to be with him. <laughs> yeah, so now this documentary has come out, and it's beautiful because in the interviews that I read with Richard Stanley, he does not point fingers at everybody, or you know, he's lived his life. It's been twenty four years. Given since the he's interviews I watched with him and prep for this, I, I'm kind of shocked to hear this because he wouldn't. I mean, he, I didn't. I'm I'm, I'm genuinely like I feel for him because I'm like, yeah. really, somebody did that to him. He seems like a really like he's definitely eclectic and strange but he seems really positive and happy and interesting in a yeah. lot of ways so and I told Evan it seems like he's like the positive version of Alan Moore from our <laughs> yes. watchman episode Alan Moore is angry cynical still all into the occult and being a witch and everything and that's what this guy sort of is this Richard Stanley but he's definitely seems like a decent guy who's just trying to do what he loves and not hurt anybody in the yeah. process. And he, and I was listening to him talk about the where he and Lovecraft thematically align, and when then where they morally totally deviate um, to have that kind of uh, that contrast. That you know he is at the end of this thing, the family is destroyed. Yeah, there's no way out of that. There's not. But can you offer a different look of what's happening? And this harkens right back to the annihilation stuff. Is it really destroying? Is the entity destroying, or is it creating something new? Do we just not understand it? I think all that's really fascinating, and that's an interesting way to reposition your point of view in a positive light, even when everything you re- know has been disintegrated. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 fascinating. He was able to find a positivity through what was going on. Unfortunately for him now, though, his life is horrific, and we'll see how these experiences tie into him oh, no. having that mentality. Oh, no. Like I said, he had grown up reading H.P. Lovecraft. He loves it. Hasn't done anything with it, though, but now he's banned from everything. So where does he go? And I couldn't believe any of this. Um, He immediately is like, well, I'm back to Africa. He said he worked at a sanctuary for traumatized chimpanzees in Uganda. Mm -hmm. So there's these chimps that are exported or they're taken through customs and they don't get through. But they've obviously been separated from their chimp family somewhere in Africa. Oh, my God. At this time, the next country over, Rwanda is in the fallout of their genocide that happens. Oh, gosh. so he said he walked and worked through the Virunga Mountains in East Africa. He started making docs for the BBC. So he does have some tertiary connection. Is slightly getting back into film here. They send him on a mission to go to Haiti to document these voodoo rituals and whatnot and get involved. And now he's interested, and he's always been, but in occultic ceremonies and, and stuff like that. Uh, Very at, interesting. At this point, a lot of sense. the U.S. is occupying Haiti after a coup and... 
he's asked to do a show for the BBC about Nazi occultists since he had just done this thing. So basically like Indiana Jones, where it's like he's on the hunt for these Nazi people who potentially are still alive, who had been involved in the weird Nazi, you know, trying to find the Holy Grail and and all of that stuff. Oh, wow. So he goes Nazi hunting. I'm going to stay up one of these nights and watch that. That sounds tight. (laughs) He uh, (laughs) he's trying to track down members of the (laughs) Anenner Bay, which is that which was the think tank that was seeking proof of German dominance in Europe. And then they got involved in what, you know, all of that. Weird. Oh, this is opening new doors. For Religious, me. This is fascinating. He goes out. He's trying to find. Oh man, I've got to look at this. This <laughs> is gonna. This is. Oh my god. <laughs> he uh, he pieced he pieced together. He was specifically fascinated by this one guy who he thought was still alive, Otto Ron, who was obsessed with finding the Holy Grail because he couldn't find anything like with Indiana Jones looking for the Ark of the Covenant. But the yeah. the Nazis were definitely looking for the Holy Grail, and he found out about this guy Otto Ron such a contradiction of terms because his mother was Jewish. And so the whole time he was working for the SS, he was trying to hide the fact that he oh had Jewish God. ancestry. And then Richard Stanley also believed that he was gay. So this guy is in this weird place that he he's in, in both his sexuality and his ethnicity. Yeah, he's a gay half Jew working for the SS. <laughs> right. What? Um, what Richard Stanley finds about what they were looking for, the grail, it's actually this stone from the sky, this meteoric debris. And so he traces it and got pieces of it from a journalist, what the Nazis were looking for, that was found through the Crusades in this castle in France what? that the Nazis were hunting where it had ended up. And Richard Stanley has some of these pieces. It can be magnetized and bleeds this ferrous solution of iron. What? Um, which was they thought was the thing that had the healing properties that let you live forever, and that's what they made a cup out of it. And in this, the the guy who interviews Richard Stanley is like, "Yeah, he showed it to me at the coffee shop when they were. He has pieces of it. <laughs> this, um, is, this is amazing. Yeah, this he, is legitimate <laughs> Indiana Jones. I was like, uh huh, right, Taylor. So he no, went this to this <laughs> right. He went to this castle and tried to find this stuff, but and and obviously found the pieces that he got from another journalist. But never met Otto. He did, though, find the family of this Otto Ron guy. And they were like, yeah, he definitely died in 39 fleeing from the SS because they found out who he was uh-huh. and uh, probably died, you know, in the oh, wastelands man. of the forests of Germany because he never came back. Oh, so Richard gosh. Stanley, like I said, turns all of this into a doc called The Secret Glory, which I'll post a link to. This is incredible. <laughs> This is my favorite thing. Thank you so much for bringing this to my attention because this is going to be a great night ahead. (laughs) But like I said, still on the documentary game. Shortly after, he's flying back to England after this roustabout round the world adventure. This is around 2007. He decides, oh, well, I'll stop back at the castle where they said they found all this stuff because it still exists in the mountains of Uh France. He goes in there, sees this apparition which was verified by other people and across time as somebody from the Crusades. So he's like, well, maybe this is real. Maybe there's something to this. So he moves and stays there. And that's where he was for 10 years from, from 2007. It was to 20, that real to 2017. It was that real for him? He, he's like, yeah, oh he's my in gosh. on it. He, he rented a cottage on the mountainside. He's the only English speaking tour guide there because there's a lot of people who are interested in going to the caves and looking at the ruins. And it's a hub for a lot of cults and sects and, people in that spectrum of, so he's of being society. A, so he's investigating it and being a tour guide and getting involved. Now he lives there. He's local. 
That's yeah. how he paid his bills. Yeah. That's what I've been wondering. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> I'm like, how do these people just like go change careers, go where they want Hide and in the mountains. find, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. So he went, he was so compelled by something and then found an economy underneath it by accident. <laughs> exactly. And plugged yeah. in. That's awesome. Yeah. So like I said, lots of cults and sects see it as this sacred place of energy. And there was one guy he knew that lived on the mountainside that said there was a dem- portal to hell oh involved. My gosh. It's a very... This is incredible. I love this. Yeah. A mining company comes in and is like, hey, you have to leave. We're taking the land. (laughs) (laughs) What? Oh, my God. The government of France is like, yeah. What? There's like a type of talcum rock. So now he can't live there anymore. And all the cultish people that are there are also having to leave. Right around this time, like we said, is when this lost soul, his friend, came over to him 2014. And is like, hey, I want to make this documentary about you. He's like, sure, I'll do some interviews, this and that. The guys from SpectreVision hear about him, come back over to him. He's like, yeah, I've been working on this script. Because at this point also, in the mid-2000s, this is when his mom gets cancer. Mm-hmm. And he even tries to use the Ferris weird rock that he has to heal her. Oh, and he wow. says that's what protracted her 10-year suffering, was because he kept her alive with this rock. Oh, my God. Which is just wild. What in the <laughs> world? So that's his life up to the making of this movie. He's like, I didn't even believe that they wanted me to make this movie. Like they had to pick him up in France and drive him to set. They filmed it parts of it in Portugal. And so Mm -hmm. he was like, I can't believe that any of this, why would anybody come get me and be like, yeah, direct this movie. (laughs) They just picked, they just found him, put him up on his feet. (laughs) There you go. Slapped him on the butt on set, buddy. Go direct. Yeah. And he said, (laughs) you know, I, uh, on day four, I was like, oh, this is real. Because like we said, he he got fired three days into the weird Marlon Brando thing. Oh, man, yeah. So he, he gets over that third day, and that's a win, baby. It's happening. <laughs> so that is the life of Richard Stanley. Now he's doing this color out of space he's business. Back. The return. He's back. <laughs> the return. He's back. We got the full story. The question becomes for a lot of people, why haven't we seen a lot of Lovecraft stuff? Right. If we have, I mean, like the thing that I thought immediately Stephen King, there's a billion things that right. are being made it's, about it's to- I'm watching The Outsider right now. It's so good. Highly recommend it for anybody. <laughs> but we, did, we didn't do that because we've done enough Stephen King. We can't, we can't keep doing Stephen King. <laughs> there's so much, but there's hardly any that we know about recently that's Lovecraft business right. This going is a term on. you just hear about appropriated all over the time. Again, like I said about Orwellian. This is a term that's just kind of littered around, but yeah. it's hard to point to a direct... Reference like no, this is love. This is this is cinema love that doesn't really exist. Maybe until now. I mean, yeah. but the closest I can really get is John Carpenter's The Thing, mm-hmm. uh, the 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 creature in that, yeah. which is also the thing loosely from Outer based Space, on, which is yeah. loosely based on this. So yeah. yeah. So as far as Richard Stanley goes, there's never a happy ending with Lovecraft right, stories, right, right. and he felt like most of the time there'd be a huge betrayal to the source material. That's the main point of H.P. Lovecraft's thing. And so, you know, he's saying Hollywood stars especially want character growth. They don't want to see when they get to the end of the script that they lost their family, they're hideously mutated, they go mad and then die. That's like not <laughs> Nicolas Cage loves that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but most people That's in not most the Hollywood classical journey that uh, that both audiences and I mean and spe- specifically talent are looking for. Uh. Yeah. So Richard Stanley said at the end of this interview, he was like, the key to cracking it for him is making it relevant to contemporary issues. Like, that's why he didn't keep it in the 1920s, didn't make it a period piece, Mm -hmm. does have a little bit more to do with the environment and an allegory for humans impacting that and that impacting humans, the cause and effect kind of thing. 
the president of the Lovecraft Society said, there's uh, only a couple stories where you can easily see what's going on, which is what Stephen King does well. A lot of his books are just written like TV shows or movies, uh, right. whereas H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft is very ambiguous, and a lot of the terror is in not humans don't understand what these otherworldly beings are. Yeah. And then the other thing that I thought was bizarre, which I didn't know about, was this murky copyright status. And really? so, yeah, so a lot of H.P. Lovecraft stuff is public domain, but there's some of his works that were either, you know, renewed or not renewed, and then he had a very young death. But most everything is non-contested, and the paperwork is scant as to whether or not it actually is in copyright. So companies don't want to mm. spend millions on something, either if it's going to be sued and they don't own it, yeah, so right, or so that if somebody right. else could immediately make another one with quicker production. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So it's like, yeah, you have to buy the Stephen King thing and then nobody else can make The Outsiders. Right, right. With, with Lovecraft, that's that's putting a, uh, the creatives and the filmmakers right out there in the open. They're mm -hmm. totally exposed. And it can be stolen right out from underneath them. Stolen, I put in quotes, because the, it's all about momentum. Is it valuable? And you only get that value right. through the market. Is it coming out uncontested? Is it coming out with something similar, not similar? That's why that's why movies come out the weekends that they do. That's why releases happen when they do. That's why some yeah. get, movies get made one year and not the other. I can see exactly why somebody would not want to step foot in the, into that no man's land. Yeah. So that coupled with the difficulty of adapting the material visually is a big reason why we don't see this. And going back to, this is a term you might hear in talking about Lovecraftian, mm -hmm. there's actually sort of a pseudo philosophy that he ascribed to and then is popularized in his works and it's called cosmicism so that's where we get mm, the idea of human human right insignificance here. it's the opposite of humanism where it's like humans matter everything they do is important humans are the most important thing that's going on cosmicism is the opposite humans are insignificant we can't even understand what's happening it's different a little bit from nihilism in that nihilism usually rejects a higher power entirely, mm -hmm. like nothing matters. But cosmicism is more just like, no, maybe there is, There's but, a humans, higher purpose, are, but we're, yeah. humans are powerless to it no matter what it is. Yeah. And also the fusion of sci-fi and horror, which those all those kind of things Stephen King has not done as much in terms of like mixing the two. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Say Stephen King is like supernatural. He's right. more spirits, and yeah, and, and uh, you know, and he subscribes more to the good versus evil. Not so simple, but in, more in that realm where it's uh, this cosmicism is uh, kind of a neutral, chaotic. Right. You know, it's like a, <laughs> <laughs> and humans. And Stephen off, King is very humanist. It's like no, no, no. Humans are yeah, important, and yeah. they have the power to deal with these Your things in their human ways. And I, and I stand as you describe all this. I'm like, well, where do I fit? You know, I'm not, I'm not a human. Definitely not nice. I'm not pessimistic. But I find I find maybe I'm so glad you've entered this into my, into my world because cosmicism. I'm like I definitely kind of subscribe to that. That there's probably something more. There's yeah. something else going on. We we are not. We cannot perceive it. And that that is kind of incumbent upon us in our journey here on this earth is to see maybe what of it we can understand. Looking to to help whatever you know, should we be right? What are we? We're not the what center. We're yeah. not the center of the universe, but we're also not helpless, right? And completely ignorant, right? I mean, I I've, I find myself wading in the in the realm between the two. I'm not not totally humanist, but I, de I definitely think our journey is worth something, at least to, yeah. at least to ourselves, and that's why we share stories to begin mm -hmm. with and, and draw empathy and and uh, grow that side of ourselves. But I also feel like maybe it's it's not about us, right? 
that's yeah. kind of what I'm kind of to get at. But that that's if you, yeah. If you did want a Stephen King version of this, the Tommy Knockers was about residents of you guessed it, a small town in Maine. Uh. <laughs> uh, but in this story, there's an alien ship that's crashed and is unearthed near the woods, and it starts to affect the citizens in strange ways. Mm. And they're actually, the major character is also named Gardner, which is the name of the main character in Color Out of Space. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Stephen King ripped off of this. Look at there. Majorly. And if you want his way of doing it, that's the way to go about it. That's cool. That's really cool yeah. to go I see did. what his version may, might be like. That's right. super cool. So. Let's talk about Lovecraft, where he came from, why he's so mad about everything, <laughs> and maybe some of the scandal that's involved yeah, with yeah. his life. Just as some bookends, he was born 1890 into affluence in New England, and then he died in poverty at the age of 46, virtually unknown by anyone in his entire lifetime oh my gosh. for his works. We know not our influence on this world. Yeah. Just a bit of the madness of his life and maybe why he is the way he is. His father had a psychotic episode and was sent to a hospital, oh, like a sanitarium, when he was three. And then his father was there in the hospital for five years and died when he was eight. Jeez. He uh, has this terrible episode in 1908 when he's in high school. And scholars theorize that it's uh, Sydenham's chorea, which gives you just terrible spasms because it only happens in childhood and you grow out of it. But it's really? not quite like seizures um, Fascinating. I've never heard about it. But this. nobody knew what, it, you know what I mean? And there's reports of him just like jerking and shaking and you have no control of your limbs, but you're oh still God. awake. It's just bizarre. Well, so, no wonder he was describing LSD before it was created. <laughs> right. <laughs> His whole life is a, is a, is is a, a circus a, show. Yeah. Is, and he's topsy turvy looking through kaleidoscope. <laughs> he always has these terrible dreams as well, but he starts publishing fiction at the age of 17. Mm. Um, and it was just these short stories that he would submit and get paid a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks, you know, right, right, that right. kind of thing. All just writing them, sending them in, little, yeah. little, a little freelance writer, chump change, getting in here and there. Yeah, in his teens and twenties. At this point, his mom gets committed to the same hospital his dad oh, was no. after a nervous breakdown. This happens when he's twenty nine years old, and then she dies two years later in oh. the hospital. Oh my god! All his stuff gets burgled from his apartment. In 1925, oh, he's just yeah. left with the clothes on his back. Oh, God. He moves to a suburb called Red Hook in Brooklyn, which has a lot of immigrant influence. And this is where he writes this story called The Horror of Red Hook, which is extremely racist. It's not even an allegory. Oh, it's God. just like how people of color and Italians and everybody that's around him There's are nihilism. <laughs> And so that's one of the controversies, which we'll get to at the end here, is that he is completely bitter and jaded and racist towards everyone. He ghostwrites an account of a vacation in Egypt for Harry Houdini. What? In one of these uh, things. And it's like, yeah, Harry Houdini had this crazy thing. He was locked in a crypt and these mummies, came, and like all this stuff. And he was beginning to form a friendship with Harry Houdini. Oh, wow. Harry Houdini dies in 1926, uh, and all their further projects are canceled. Uh, <laughs> there just, it was. Yeah, that was just it. like so. The other thing that happens, just punch, just gut punches, <laughs> just one after another, after another, after another. I mean, I'm, I don't, I get, to, I can see how somebody can be so bitter and nihilistic and just 
yeah, doesn't racist and any of it. Like suffering from it. horrible dreams. Yeah, he Good was Lord. He also had such a low self image. Like he was known to give up selling a story if it was rejected once. Really? Yeah. Like he ne- he didn't have that gumption, yeah. which you hear a lot of like, yeah. oh, you know, J.K. Rowling submitted to fifty publishers right. and nobody. It's right. like he didn't have that in him at all. He, right, and so, so is that the litmus test of what what gets out there in the in the public and what's important writing? And it's like, oh god. Anyway, yeah. don't get me on my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> but also, like I said, he lived dirt poor. He was without food because he wanted to pay for mailing letters. Also, then imagine, like I said, Harry Houdini ties in twenty six. So the Great Depression is starting now in twenty nine. Oh my god. <laughs> And this is where his cynicism comes also, because he lived through the roaring 20s, dirt poor, when everybody's drinking champagne and uh, celebrating. And then... And then it really... And then, then it, it really hits. hits. His friend Robert Howard commits suicide in 36. Oh, my God. And so, also, HP goes to the hospital because he's feeling weird. He has cancer of the small intestine, but because he was so poor, he didn't pursue any of his ailments and he also has been having ailments his whole life so he didn't go to the doctor until he had a month left to live and so then he dies the next year in 37 Uh. at the age of 46 so all of the stuff that he's ever written is just these short stories in these silly magazines that you never got a legitimate outlet never had like a major project with yeah that is horrible the interesting thing that we do know about him, he's one of the most prolific writers in terms of his letters and correspondence. He has over 100,000 letters oh my God. written, and that's how we know so much about him and about his life and about what he thought and about all the people that he interacted with. It's like a like going through someone's phone. Yeah. <laughs> his diary. There is this thing called the Lovecraft Circle, and so he was the guy that was the main guy writing in these magazines, and if you were reading these magazines and you were wanting to write in them, you knew about H.P. Lovecraft. Hmm. So Robert Howard was one of these guys who was just a teenager who was then writing in and asking him for advice, and they had this correspondence. He eventually is the guy who's the creator of Conan the Barbarian. Oh, wow. And uh, he's responsible for the sword and sorcery genre, like which World of Warcraft comes from, like all of that kind of stuff. That's this Robert Howard guy who was inspired by H.P. Lovecraft and was corresponding with him. Another guy, Robert Block, reached out to him as a teenager after reading his work in Weird Tales, sent him copies of manuscripts he wanted to get published, and then eventually became the author of Psycho. Wow. Which is another horror classic. Oh, my God. Yeah, and he would absolutely. have. He would never would have done it had H.P. Lovecraft not written back to him and been like, "Yeah, you should give this a shot." We know not our impact on this world. Yeah. So the, yeah, the other guy that he was friends with was August Derleth, and because it was published in pulp magazines, that was it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. that's the end of it. So this guy, August Derleth, there was this other guy, Donald, with him. Do they collected the best of his weird fiction stories and put it into a memorial volume? No publishers wanted it though. So they formed their own publishing company, Arkham House, which Arkham is the town that the Color Out of Space takes place in. And Arkham House then became the publisher of H.P. Lovecraft stories. That's obviously people know about Arkham Asylum from Batman. That is a nod to H.P. Lovecraft. I did not know Which I never knew about. That's incredible. Yeah. God. Um, Real quick, I, had, yeah. I did notice in uh, in the film one of the characters is attacked by the entity while only holding a copy of a book called The Willows. Uh-huh. I looked this up. It's a book by Algernon Blackwood. It was written in 1907. This was 
Lovecraft's vote for scariest story of all time. Oh, wow. Which I thought was really fascinating. So that's another little odd Lovecraft note that made Proof it into the film. that Richard Stanley loves him. <laughs> yeah, knows very a much lot so. about him. I did want to bring up, just as our last thing, a negative and a positive. As we mentioned, Lovecraft was extremely racist, and we would be remiss not to mention yes. that aspect of him. His yes. work is heavily celebrated, but he, the person, was kind of a turd. Yeah. He had a he had a really horrible life, and he didn't do anything to change that for himself uh, on a personal level. It doesn't sound like and uh, and he celebrated rape. Hitler rising <laughs> to power. And did he really? Yeah, God. In some of his letters, uh, um, the fallout from this, the positive side of things, the World Fantasy Award, which was named in his honor, is a bust of H.P. Lovecraft. But in 2011, there was a Nigerian American author. Nettie Okorafor, mm-hmm. who won the award, she was like, I don't want this. Like, I don't want this guy's yeah. bust sitting on my shelf. Like, the highest prize that I can win for my art is this racist, racist man. bust of a racist man. And she has a point because it's like, yeah, Definitely. if you want to celebrate, if the, and the, the controversy is like separate his him right. from the art, but then don't make the, like, make the award right. a crazy Actually monster. Actually separate him from the, or from the art. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So that kind of thing. Like, so they did love change. His work. Don't yeah. really want to hear his thoughts. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or just don't have it emblematic of him. So they did yeah. they did change it so that it doesn't isn't a representation of him, but instead his work. And uh, just be I fe- Cthulhu. And we yeah. get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I and then I looked into this further because there is the idea of Lovecraft country is like all of his work sits in the same universe mm-hmm. in one thing. Mm-hmm. There is a book that came out in 2016 by Matt Ruff, called Lovecraft Country. It was also nominated for this World Fantasy Award. Really? And it is about this road trip across 1950s Jim Crow America for this guy in search of his father. And it melds these two ideas of racism in that time and these weird monsters and this looming dread. And it merges these Lovecraftian elements and an homage to him alongside African-American struggle in that time period. That sounds awesome. It's awesome also because we might be covering it. HBO picked it up as a TV show. Here we go. Jordan baby. Peele. Jordan yes. Peele and JJ Abrams production companies are both making it. Oh my gosh. And it's been in production. So it's gonna come out at some point. But I thought that's fascinating. And what a beautiful finality to that to say, like, oh, okay. Yeah. He would be rolling over in his grave if he saw (laughs) (laughs) all his ideas and stuff are now being used as like a pro, like, hey, let's put these two things together and show tackling racist horrors alongside these supernatural larger looming forces and comparing and contrasting the two and human influence versus outside. I mean, it's going to I think it's going to be really cool. That sounds fascinating. That sounds great. Yeah. That sounds so good. Yeah. Uh, It's called Lovecraft Country. Yeah, that's what I have on (laughs) the wild world of Richard Stanley and H.P. Lovecraft. This was a doozy, man. The color out of space. I mean, it certainly was colorful. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so it's uh, it's in a limited release right now. Color out of space starring Nicolas Cage and Chong from Cheech and Chong. He's a bit part in it. He's really funny. Um, uh, Go check it out. I'm excited. If if they're going to do more Lovecraft stuff, if if Richard Stanley is going to really open this up. (laughs) Richard Stanley's back. (laughs) If he's back, baby. Uh, I, I could see, I could go for more of this. This was yeah. fun. Please, please, we'll say it again. Check out our links. Our links in the description. They're so they're so tasty. They're meaty. They're meaty. Check them out. Also, get in touch with us. If let us know what you're reading. Let us know what you're watching. 
get in touch with us at IlliteratePod on Instagram. And we will talk to you next week. Thank you.